This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil break down the Iowa caucus results and preview the New Hampshire primary, examine the GOP's rewriting of the history of January 6th, discuss South Africa bringing a genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, and close by looking at data suggesting that all Americans feel like political losers. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's a professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill. Happy New Year. Welcome back. All that stuff. Happy New Year. It's been a while. It's been a minute since we've podcasted. It yeah, it's been. It, this feels like the longest break we've taken in a long time. I, it's, I felt rusty today as I was getting ready to do this. Yeah, this is true. You know, you get out of sync. You know, usually we're pretty good about week to week. And then uh, you got sick last week. And yeah. then the week before I was in Costa Rica and you were in New York. We've yeah. been uh, we've been very busy. Yeah. How is how was Costa Rica? Oh, it was it was fantastic. Uh, it was, uh, you know, what an amazing place. Beautiful mountains and uh, ocean and jungle. Um, just, you know, just amazing scenery. You see all these different animal sloths and toucans. And it's it's so different from Naperville. <laughs> so uh, so it was great. We, we did uh, zip lining over the top of the jungle, which was extraordinary. We ate some amazing food. You know, in Costa Rica, it's 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 like all family run businesses. And so you just get this, this unbelievable food um yeah it uh it, it was it was wonderful i i hear nothing but good i've never been but i hear the people i know who have gone i hear nothing but great things about costa rica now i also know you well and i know yeah. that you do not like spiders or snakes or heights and so like yeah. it, 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 you managed all of that somehow even though that you were in the jungle and doing zip lines and stuff you 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 survived yes we were close to tarantulas and saw viper snakes and uh yes and there you know in costa rica so there's lots of bugs i usually don't like bugs very much uh zip lining and then i i even nobody our listeners won't believe this but i did a bungee jump which is insanely not me uh and i only screamed a little bit uh it was yeah it was uh, i was outside of my comfort zone and embracing it nice Nice. Now, I hear that when you come across those vipers, you're supposed to poke them with a stick to let them know you're there. Yeah. Did you do that? You did that a lot? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. You want to get as close to them as possible and lots of poking. <laughs> that was great. We did a uh, we did a night hike and uh, the guy that we were with, they're amazing at finding things. Like if, if you know, the average person does a, a hike in the jungle, you're not going to see anything, but they found all sorts of things. And they were smart enough to tell us a, a safe distance. Um, and, uh, and they would oftentimes have a little telescope so you could see it and not not get too close because the the viper and then we saw a baby viper which apparently they're even more dangerous because they mm. they don't hold back any venom they'll just they're just oh. one one shot to you so it uh um it was it was a lot now okay while i was in costa rica you were exploring new york which yeah. is also a jungle of sorts it is it's <laughs> It is true. The concrete jungle. Yeah. New York was great. It was uh, Kelly and I were there celebrating our, our anniversary and her birthday. And I love New York. It was, um, we, you know, went to the theater, we ate out, we went to museums. It's just, you and I have been there so many times that it's like, there's no pressure. Like I don't feel like I have to go to the sites. Um, and so, yeah, it was great. We ate wonderful food. We went to, we went to the tenement museum, which I've been hearing about for years. And Mm -hmm. that was really fantastic. The only downside I, for, for Kelly's birthday, we went to a Michelin star restaurant, sort of on your recommendation. Cause I've heard so many yeah. great things and, and, you know, I've been watching the bear and all these other things and it was a phenomenal experience, but it was also the most 
most expensive meal I've ever had in my life. And <laughs> as you mentioned, I was sick, so I couldn't taste any of it. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's too bad. That takes away a little bit when you can't actually taste the food at a at a fine restaurant, but it seemed impressive. <laughs> it really is. Those those five star or one star, like what you know, when you do the Michelin things, like it's another level of food and it's a ridiculous amount of money. Like it's stupid to think about yeah. spending that. But then when you have that experience, you understand why it costs so much because the service is impeccable. The food, yeah. you know, everything's exquisite. It really it is it's it's really an art form. So now it was yeah. multiple courses. Is that is that yeah, all yeah. the food that you yeah, did like taste? A fixed yeah, price fixed price menu, and it was like a five course, you know most of the courses were multiple things and yeah i mean it was wow. it was just tons of food it was all it was a, a a restaurant that is actually i guess has ties to a like a farm in western mass and so it was very sort of vegetable focused and um mm. yeah i mean stuff that i had never you know squash ice cream and stuff that i had never imagined uh. before um and you're right it was like they called like a week ahead of time they called me to like ask about you know what we enjoyed eating and what our preferences were i've never had that experience yeah. chili's doesn't do that for you, Bill. No, no, they do not. <laughs> We've done a, a few of them in Chicago and it's same sort of experience. And they notice the little things like the service. Well, they noticed that I was left handed uh-huh. and, and they, you know, they're like, we, we noticed you're left handed. We're going to make, I was like, that's unbelievable. They, you know, slap that's you? Just... they were like, we noticed you're left handed and then they hit you. <laughs> right, right. Yes. But yeah, you, you have food like that and it, it truly is like, it's just, it's, it's, it is. It is art. It's, it's an just art. Yeah. creative, yeah. and yeah, you you appreciate the people that are doing that high end food. So yeah. I'm glad you got that experience. Yeah. And next time, hopefully, you can taste it. I'll try to. Eat, I'll try to taste it next time. I'm sure it'll be yes. even more enjoyable. <laughs> uh, well, all right. Before we dive in, we got a lot to talk about today. Why don't you remind everybody? It's been a few weeks. How they can stay connected with us? Yeah. So our website is thepoliticslab.com, and you can go there and find out all the information you need about Bill and I and the podcast. Uh, and you can also find all our old episodes, including this week's episode. I know most people listen on, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. But if you go to the web page, um, we always have links to articles that are relevant, related to the topics that we talk about. So, you know, this week I've got, I think, five or six articles related to the Iowa caucuses, related to the um, the the South African ICJ case against Israel. I've got a link to the Genocide Convention. There's just lots of stuff for kind of further reading that you can uh, find. And that's all, again, at the Politics Lab. That's fantastic. All right, Phil, you ready to dive in? Let's do it. So uh, to start with, the, the, the 2024 election officially kicked off on Monday with the Iowa caucuses. It's kind of hard to believe that we're already at this point. It is. Um, as expected, Donald Trump won the contest with 51% of the vote. That was kind of one of the big questions. Was he going to cross the 50% threshold? Ended up at 51. Um, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley both came in second and third, respectively, with 21 and 19% of the vote. Uh, in the aftermath of the day, all the other major candidates other than Trump, uh, DeSantis and Haley have basically, they've all dropped out of the race. Um, so Bill, there, there have been a lot of attempts to read the tea leaves over the past few yeah. days and, and predict what this means for New Hampshire next week for the 2024 race in general. So um, I, I thought I would just throw out some some facts here. There's some arguments that this was a bad sign for Trump. There's some arguments that this was a good sign for Trump. I'm going to throw some of these out there and then we can sort of talk about it. So from the the Iowa was a, a you know, warning signs for Trump. Um, turnout was incredibly low uh, for this, uh, you know, just didn't seem like people were all that excited. Um, and Trump only ended up receiving about 55,000 votes, um, in a state that is, uh, you know, anyway, it's, it's, I, there's questions about it's how, how broadly representative it is, but, um, the idea that he's like generating excitement, maybe not there. 
Um, Iowa also has a pretty bad record of picking the ultimate winner of the GOP contest, maybe because it's such a bad representation of the American yeah. population. I mean, it is very white. It's very Midwestern. Um, and then, you know, there's this argument that even though Trump got 51 percent, basically half of the voters chose a candidate other than Trump, even in a year in which Trump is sort of seen as inevitable and he's running like the incumbent. So all of those point to well, maybe there's more of a race here than we realize. On the flip side, the argument that this is really, a, it was actually a really good sign for Trump. Um, it is the largest margin of victory in the history of the Iowa caucuses. That's remarkable to me. Yeah. Um, and and the low turnout is maybe a bit of an issue because it was, the weather was really brutal. Um, Trump was expected to win by really large numbers. And so the idea that people were willing to go out on a cold night to vote in an election that was decided, you know, it's hard to read into that. Um even though Trump only got 50% of the vote, um, there's from entry polls and all sorts of other things, there's all sorts of evidence that he is still sort of the second choice candidate for many of these people. And then the, it really kind of comes back around to the, those entrance and exit polls also pointed out that Trump is still very much uh, in control of the party. Like two thirds of voters said they believe that the last election was stolen. A similar number said they would support Trump even if he was convicted. So all of that seems to indicate, you know, strength for for Trump. So, you know, as the race now turns to New Hampshire, where Nikki Nikki Haley has been polling awfully close to Trump in recent weeks, like within the margin of error um, yeah. in a number of polls. Uh, Bill, let's talk about what you know. What do you make of Iowa? Does it tell us anything about what happens next? What conclusions can we draw? Like, what what do you you know? It's I, I don't know. I it feels like sometimes we read too much into these, but that's yeah. what we do as political scientists. So so read that's too right. much into this. What do you what do you think? Well, well, Iowa. Let's start by saying the Iowa caucus system is a weird one, and it produces <laughs> bad data. It's hard to extrapolate. I mean, what, there were only I think one hundred ten thousand. Uh, caucusers, you know, yeah. which is it's roughly 15% of registered Republicans in Iowa, right? So, I mean, it's it's a small sample in a small state uh, that isn't representative of the country at a, at, as a whole, right? So, it's, it's hard to know whether and how meaningful this data is. I, I do think it is the beginning of the coronation of Trump's candidacy. I just don't see, you know, any way that he gets derailed for a couple reasons. I mean, one, um, I mean, this is a this was a big big victory in Iowa. You know, the polling suggests that you know New Hampshire may be slightly closer, but after that, it really looks like Trump is gonna not only he's gonna run the field, and they have been smarter the Trump campaign this year about connecting at the state level, making sure the delegates are lined up for them. You know, it just feels like everything is moving in Trump's direction. T to be honest, it feels like this is less a political party these days, the Republican Party, and more of a political movement mm -hmm. on behalf of Donald Trump. So it's, you know, it's, it's, I would like to see, uh, you know, Haley or DeSantis push him a little bit because I think that would be good for the Republican Party. But, but at a macro level, this feels like again, it's it's a coronation of Trump, and and my sense is he may have this wrapped up by Super Tuesday, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers and how things shake out, it would take an extraordinary movement by Haley or DeSantis to really to really uh, sort of push this in a different direction. But uh, you know, it's still early, and we only have Iowa. I, I don't know. I mean, you're 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 on the ground in New Hampshire. You got a sense of what's playing out. I mean, do you see this different differently? Um, I don't think I see it that differently. I think maybe I see a very slight, you know, yeah. slightly greater chance than you that something weird happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I think there, there's a long history of drawing, you know, uh, 
inaccurate conclusions from Iowa. So I think that's kind of yeah. the the place I begin, which is to say, yeah, Trump won big. Um, I, I will wait to see if he wins big in the next couple of states to see if that's actually true. Um, you know, I, I've read a number of articles on it. A number of them have said things like part of what uh, it, that Trump's Trump's win might have actually been bigger than we realize, and that's partly because mm-hmm. a whole bunch of independents and Democrats came out and voted in the Republican caucuses. Um, and and there's been a push for that here in New Hampshire as well, where you can you can uh, if you're an independent on on primary day, you can vote in whichever party you want. Um, if you're an independent and you vote in the Republican primary, your registration changes to Republican, but you can just go in and change it back to independent. Sure. Um, so you can you have that, and and there's a huge chunk of people who register as independents. Um, in, in New Hampshire, it's harder for Democrats to vote in the Republican primary unless you plan well ahead. But there have been, uh, you know, sort of uh, grassroots movements to encourage people to do that in opposition to Trump. And so, um, you know, on one hand, that says to me that maybe Trump's support in the true GOP is even stronger than we realize. Could but be. there's another yeah. part of me that says that, that that also reveals kind of the weakness of Trump broadly, that people are mm-hmm. so, so willing to vote against him, right? That they're going to like, I, you know, people who would never consider voting in the Republican primary who are now going to do it just because not because they like one of the other candidates, but because they that strongly oppose Donald Trump. So yeah. um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So so next week in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley's much stronger. Um, New Hampshire, again, had for a long time a really good record of predicting uh, winners, and that's kind of gone out the window as well. But, you know, this is where I, you know, I think if, if DeSantis had done worse last week, he would have dropped out or this week he would have dropped out. Maybe you would have seen more consolidation around Nikki Haley. But I I do think the next couple of contests set up well for her. She's doing well in New Hampshire. And then it's off to South Carolina, which is her home state. And so that's one of the, that's the only, I I still think it's unlikely, but if she does surprisingly well in New Hampshire and then goes on and has a strong showing in, in South Carolina, then who knows what happens from that point forward. I still think that is, you know, an outside that's like, you know, the, I don't know, watching all the the NFL playoffs and whatnot. I follow the little tracker. That's like what, what percentage a a team has to win. I I still feel like it's like 95% Trump at this point, but uh, there is that small window in which a a team makes some sort of crazy comeback. And and that, that maybe that's team Haley here. Well, it is interesting. I was a little surprised DeSantis did as well as he did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was the, the sort of consensus is, is that campaign is falling apart. And that may prove to be the case in New Hampshire and elsewhere. Yeah. But, you know, what did he get? 20 percent or something? You know, yeah, yeah that, that's that's a better turnout than I would have thought. Now, again, the Iowa caucus system is so weird. Um, you know, the, everybody goes into the, you know, to a room and then you go to different corners based on your interest. And if there aren't enough supporters, you got to change allegiances. And then, I mean, there was this video going around where the votes were being tallied in a paper bag, you know, where we talk, you know, Republicans <laughs> spend so much time thinking about, you know, election integrity. Yet when it comes to a, an Iowa caucus, they're happy throwing a, a name in a, in a paper sack and assuming that that's legitimate. I, I mean, I understand that it's quaint and there's some charm to it i i really think it's not a good way to start a primary because it's it's again iowa is nowhere near representative of of the country and it's just such a quirky way yeah. uh, to calculate votes yeah 
Yeah, it'll be. So what what do you um, this is the problem with Iowa. We've talked about this, right? Iowa and New Hampshire, where there are like overwhelmingly white and uh, especially for I think especially for the Democratic Party, it's it's a problem. But um, even it's becoming a problem for the Republican Party, right, which has has over the in the Trump era has had sort of increased success with with, uh, you know, the Latino population, with black voters and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, who, who knows how that will all uh, play out as we move forward. But so, so next week I, I, am going to, I have to look uh, the, the latest polls had, um, uh, I feel like, you know, New Hampshire, um, Nikki Haley was within, I don't know, a couple of points, um, That's of, interesting. of Trump. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is, again, this is what you see in New Hampshire. So Trump hasn't been particularly present in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley has been. And as we've talked yeah. about, like doing all of these town halls where people are showing up, I think that makes a big difference. I think it's, it, there is something to that and in, in that, you know, you have to be able to run a campaign. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's see, the latest polls have, uh, um, there have been a number of polls that, yeah, in fact, a couple of them have, have Haley and Trump tied others have, I mean, this is the primary thing again, where there are others where Trump's up by like 15%. So it'll be really interesting to see how that, if, yeah. if Nikki Haley can be within a couple of points of Trump, I think it becomes a little bit of a different race. If Trump somehow pulls off a 15 point, uh, win in New Hampshire, it feels like it's over. I think that's right. Now, there are huge important differences between Iowa and New Hampshire as well, right? So Iowa, very, very evangelical. Uh, that, I think, plays better for Trump than yep. New Hampshire, where yep. there's more uh, more sort of independent voters. And uh, it's a different kind of dynamic where Trump doesn't do as well, right? I mean, Trump, Trump does very, very well among the evangelical community. And it is not surprising that he did well. Now, what's interesting is the difference between 2016, uh, where he Trump did not do particularly well in Iowa. That was was, you know, everybody loved Ted Cruz, but now, you know, so many years later, the evangelical community has embraced Trump. And again, that's it's it's a different vibe in New Hampshire, and that may increase the odds of Haley, maybe DeSantis is, uh, you know, doing better there. It's a really interesting uh, sort of measure or test of the ways in which the Republican Party is changing, uh, because you're right. Iowa is much more evangelical. New Hampshire's New Hampshire and Vermont are the two least religious states uh, in the country. Yeah. Um, but New Hampshire has this long live free or die kind of libertarian streak. And so the, the Republican Party, it, we've talked about how the Republican Party is actually sort of multiple different parties. And I feel like that plays out in the differences here, evangelical voters versus sort of more libertarian voters. But you also have in New Hampshire kind of that rural uh, kind of blue collar base that Trump yeah. does really well with. And so, you know, to what extent can Donald Trump, who has been campaigning on this like retribution authoritarian sort of approach, to yeah. what extent can he make that appealing to people who are in theory, at least more libertarian. And, and if, if he's successful in doing that, I think that says a lot about the remaking of the, you know, that it yeah. really is about sort of identity and grievance and so many other things and less about kind of core political beliefs. Everything over the last 10 years indicates that that is the case. But, um, yeah. you know, we'll see. We'll see on, on Tuesday if that's actually how it plays out here or not.
Well, the other important thing that you noted earlier was that for most Republicans, even if they're if they're supporting DeSantis or Haley at this point, Trump is still their second candidate. Right. And right. I think that's important because it's one thing if if the 30 or 40 percent who are not voting Trump are ardently anti-Trump. And there certainly are segments of that. But there's still for a lot of that that group They're They're saying like, hey, we don't want the drama of Donald Trump for another presidential term, but we would certainly vote for him over Joe Biden. Right. I think yeah. it's uh, Donald Trump has done an excellent job of demonizing Biden, where even if somebody doesn't support Trump in the primary, they're likely to continue to vote for him in the general election, which, again, it suggests that over the long haul, Trump is going to emerge and, and maybe wrap this up more quickly than, than other yeah. candidates in history. The ability to to sort of, I don't know, change, control that narrative is really remarkable to me. I mean, even watching yeah. the ads here in New Hampshire, like even Nikki Haley ads are basically arguing that it's they're sort of equally opposed to Trump and Biden. And, and they're like this whole idea of like, they're both, you know, looking backwards, they're both like presidents of chaos. And I think how, how in the world have they been able to sort of, you know, frame Joe Biden as sort of as chaotic or as dangerous as Trump, but they've, they've been able to do it. It's, it's really remarkable. I know in political science, having say it's one of those where I, like, but in theory, I know that happens, yeah. but to watch it play out, like it's sort of, yeah. you know, it, it, it uh, it's hard to wrap my head around. Well, and I, I really think that Haley or DeSantis, whichever, you know, the second candidate, they're not none of them are under the impression that they can win this. They're really hoping to to emerge that that solid number two. So if it's Haley and she, you know, she's the the default candidate at 25 percent, she's hoping that something some outside factor, whether it's it's, an, you know, he gets uh, convicted or something like that. And then it falls to her. None of them really believe they can win this. It really yeah. is. If Trump falters, they're the they're the fallback choice. Do you do you, some of, there's been some talk about how this is really a race for the VP. I know we need to move on to the next topic, but that this is really a race for the vice presidency. And I like I get that to some extent with DeSantis, who's trying to be Trump like, uh, you know, Haley has like avoided critiquing Trump openly. But I do you think that like it's 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 hard for me to imagine that Trump would want her as a running mate. And it's hard for me to imagine that she would want to be Trump's running mate. But do you think there's something there like what, if she if he calls and offers it? Is she going to say no? I, I can't really imagine that either. It's a great question. My initial thought was no, but then Trump can only run for one term. Mm. So do you put up for Trump with Trump for four years under the assumption that you're then the next Republican candidate or the leading candidate? I I don't know. I mean, the smart thing is to don't take it, right? I mean, yeah. you, you have name recognition. You position yourself. I mean, Mike Pence taught us anything is like being the vice president is a terrible position and you are going to crash and burn. <laughs> but but who knows? I, I guess I could see Trump. I would think Trump would go in a different direction, but yep. but who knows? Yeah. Well, that's what I come from. It, it is the lessons learned of Mike Pence, but it's also the lessons learned of Donald Trump. Where we've talked about like every indication is he's, he's going to surround himself with yes men. And so that's yeah. where I, it's hard for me to imagine as terrible as it was for Mike Pence, it's going to be even worse for the next person unless you're just totally on board with Trump. And it's I, that's where I have a hard time thinking that Trump would see Haley as that loyal and that that Haley would be willing to go through what it would require. But, you know, ambition, ambition does weird things to people. So 
It, it absolutely does. Yeah, I think the, the bigger question is whether Trump would go for that. I mean, he, I think maybe Vivek Ramaswamy might be a more, true. you know, a better choice because he's going to be a yes man. I mean, yeah. Trump trashed him on social media. And then I saw the other day uh, that Ramaswamy was in New Hampshire supporting Trump. Right. I mean, it's just it's really it's fascinating it's to see, you know, the, the allure of power. So. All right. Well, we should uh, transition. We're still going to stay domestically. So earlier this month was the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The anniversary provided a useful opportunity to see and appreciate the dramatic shift that has occurred in how Republicans understand the events of January 6th. In the days after the attack, there was near universal condemnation, even from Trump's inner circle of supporters. Yet as time has passed, the view of January 6th has been fundamentally rewritten, rewritten, uh, where according to this new uh, possession, or according to a New York uh, Washington Post poll, uh, Washington Post University of Maryland poll, now 25% of Americans say it's probably or definitely true that the FBI instigated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Among Trump voters, 44% say the FBI organized and encouraged the attacks on the Capitol. It's just a stunning number. Uh, The percentage of Republicans who hold Trump responsible for the attack has dropped from 27% to 14%. Um, these efforts to rewrite the history of January 6th began at a grassroots level, but were quickly amplified by prominent right-wing media fe- uh, figures, and then eventually by far-right lawmakers such as Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we've now reached a point where the historical rewrite of January 6th is sort of mainstream thinking among many, if not most, Republicans. Uh, Trump and his supporters, including Elise Stefanik, have begun referring to jail January 6th rioters as hostages. Phil, this is a dramatic shift and one that leads me to conclude that the purveyors of disinformation have won. They've just won. Uh, they've been able to rewrite history, which I would suggest is sort of bad. So so here's a question. Am I being overly dramatic here? No, no, I don't. I, I, this is it really is shocking. I, I think, you know, th- there is an understanding, you know, when you when you talk about history and memory and all of these other things that, you know, time context can change things, how we view things, how we interpret things. What's particularly remarkable about this is how quickly it's happened and how quickly it's happened in like the presence of clear evidence otherwise. Right. I mean, everyone watched the videos of what happened on January 6th. And so for people to talk about how the, it was wasn't violent or, you know, despite having seen the videos of the violence is, is really this kind of remarkable testament to the, the, the human brain's willingness to kind of create a world that they're comfortable with. Right. Um, and so, yeah, no, I don't think you're, I don't think you're wrong to say that, that disinformation has won, you know, and I think there's so many elements to this. It, it is, you know, we we can talk about uh, the role of social media and the ways that, you know, we we know that sort of false stories spread more quickly. The the way algorithms have sort of framed the information that people see. Yeah. I think we could dig dig into what we know about, um, you know, what we've talked about. Um, when we talk about uh, uh, what we know about the breakdown of democracy in Levitsky and Ziblatt and, and and talking about the role of parties in sort of playing gatekeepers. And you go back to what happened after January 6th. And um, even though, you know, all these leading Republicans were appalled by what he did, 
the the sort of unwillingness in that moment to say so clearly by the Mitch McConnells and all these others just left this sort of vacuum for the Tucker Carlson's to fill. Right. And so by the time like they get around to saying, no, he's a bad, this is a bad thing. It's, it's too late. Like those, those, you know, the, that, uh, uh, that narrative has, has been set. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as we get further and further away from it, it is, you know, where people are able to, you know, when, when it wasn't three days ago, but it's three years ago, um, people yeah. are able to convince themselves of, of what they want to believe. But yeah, I mean, it is both a, a statement of the, I think the power of disinformation and also in the world we live in, like the ease with which disinformation can win these days. It, it is, it feels like an unfair fight in, in a lot of ways. I, what do you, I mean, what's your, what's, is there an optimistic view of this? Like <laughs> this doesn't seem good for democracy, for America. No, no, right. Especially as you noted, when we're on the cusp of it only getting the tools of disinformation getting better, right? So we talk about deep fakes and the ability to manipulate information, AI and all of this, right? These are challenges that are only going to become bigger as time goes by. And, you know, we, we think about you know, the Trump administration and his inauguration where he talked about that it was the largest crowd in, you know, any sort of history. Um, and, and that was the beginning of these small lies. And over time, we sort of got uh, used to those. But I would have thought that an event like January 6th would have been immune to that, right? That this was a big thing. It was you know, arguably the, uh, you know, the biggest attack on the government, you know, and, and since the Civil War. In terms of trying to disrupt an election, it it should have stood on its own, and I think been immune from that kind of disinformation. But it wasn't, and it, again, the fact that it happened that quickly—we're not talking about twenty-five years, you know, after people have died and we kind of return to manipulate history. That happens a lot, but this is in the moment where there is video. We all remember this event. It's it's really sort of shocking that it was that easy to do, and I think the process to me is is sort of curious as well, where this wasn't just Trump saying the lie over and over and over again. This really grew organically, mm-hmm. oftentimes starting with the attackers, you know, who were there on the grounds on January 6th, and then, you know, family and friends, and then the media gets involved, and they lay the seeds. And then, of course, Trump seizes, and, he, you know, he'll, he'll sow those seeds afterwards. But it was, it's sort of fascinating how this, it was organic in how it took off, and then you get these major media players, and you get the political players and of course Donald Trump. Um, yeah, it, it, again, the, the process is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I, th- again, I, there's it, this is such a complex and and fascinating thing to sort of you know dig into. We've talked about. Uh, you know, it, in in that notion, as you were talking about the ways in which this happened so quickly, and I, I, there's just kind of thinking through it, I think about we've talked about the role of cynicism in American politics yeah. and how cynical people are, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, I think uh, you know we've talked about the role of of, of populism, like the way in which yeah. when people are frustrated with government and government's inability to govern, that contributes to these populist, you know, anti-government attitudes, and so. It's sort of cyclical, right? Like people are cynical about government and that makes them more likely to latch on to these populist movements, which makes them even more cynical about government. And it just grows like it it is amazing to me that 45 percent of Republicans think the FBI instigated 
January 6th, I, it's maybe even more yeah. remarkable that like 12% of Democrats do, right? So, I mean, that's yes. that level of like <laughs> right. cynicism yeah. about like there, there are some people who there's, there's so many people in America who look at Donald Trump and think that guy is, you know, a blowhard asshole or whatever, but the government and the FBI are, you know, even worse or whatever, mm-hmm. right? That like, I don't trust them yeah. either. And so that's a really bad place, uh, just a, it's a bad place to be. I also think about like, you know, that what we know about social media is the ways in which the more extreme views get amplified because yeah. most normal people are out doing their life and they're not posting about how Joe Biden, you know, is a pedophile on, on, right, on, right. on the internet. And so the people who feel the strongest are the ones who are filling up those, those spaces. And we know that people are more likely to engage with those sorts of extreme statements. And so all of that contributes to it. And I, and I also think about the role of norms. Like, I feel like this is the idea of, you said in an article this week about how, how much Donald Trump sort of uses the I'm rubber, you're glue kind of, <laughs> yes, kind of defense, yes, right? Yeah. You accuse me of being corrupt and I'll say, no, you're really the corrupt one. But I feel like in American politics for a really long time, there was, you know, vote, people might have had this sense that I like Donald Trump or I, I don't like Joe Biden, but like Donald Trump was such a, you know, the stuff he says is so like, there's a level of shame in that, like, I don't like Joe Biden, but I can't be proud of being a Trump supporter. And it feels like Donald Trump has sort of plowed through that shame wall in such a way that these norms have changed so that there's like people who are now like, I don't like Joe Biden and I don't have to be ashamed of supporting this, you know, this, you know, bully um, because that's it's okay, Right. And so it's like all these these elements of, I think, again, social media and human nature and all of this has culminated into a. A, a situation in which like, I, I don't, again, we don't agree on truth anymore in, in America. Right. No. And I think, you know, the, I, you mentioned the I'm rubber, you're glue. I think that's such a, a great way to kind of think about all of this because it doesn't, when you, if you're Donald Trump and you're deploying that, right. So whatever somebody says that you've done, you just flip it and say, no, you're the one that did it. Right. So, so with January 6th, right. It is, it was clear to anybody with eyeballs watching this, what happened. Uh, and then Trump can flip that Trump with the aid of others to flip it and say, no, 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 it was the deep state. It was Antifa. It was others, right. They're the ones. And they're using this, that article talks about the new acronym in a lot of Trump speeches. He's talking about Biden against democracy. Bad, right. Bad's the acronym, which is also sort of very juvenile, but, but it's effective, right. So, because it, it, it mess it makes it complicated to understand who's really bad. Right. Well, you know, Donald Trump says Joe Biden's a danger to democracy and he's the one who's going to undermine democracy. And then Joe Biden says, well, you know, Donald Trump carried out the January 6th attack. Well, who knows? They all everybody, you know, a plague on everybody's house. And with that sort of complexity, disinformation, confusion, people sort of just walk away and say, I don't know what truth is anymore. And it yep. again, it creates space for these alternative historical accounts. Yeah, uh, yeah it's stunning. For cynicism. I mean, right. That's yeah. I mean, that, that what it, what it, this approach to politics that Donald Trump has, what it's done is it, it's again, this notion that like he even talks this way, right. That like everybody's bad, right. Like, sure. Yeah. I did some crappy stuff, but everybody does it. Right. And so yes. it, it, it like erodes the notion that, that anybody is a good actor. And so yeah. if nobody is a good actor, then you might as well get yours, right? You might as well yeah. support the person yeah. who's just going to do whatever it takes for you to win. And, and that's where we are, right? If, if, if nobody's actually out to improve society in 
everybody's in it for themselves, then you might as well be in it for yourself as well. And you shouldn't feel bad about it. Right. That's the, that shame part that's gone as well. Right. right. It's just, it's, it's really remarkable. And if, if we don't share a, a common sense of history and what has happened, it's it's very difficult to think about, you know, effective governance, right? right. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like, you can't possibly move past January 6th. You can't talk about adjudicating it, holding Trump accountable. Any of those things are dependent upon everybody accepting those basic facts of what happened. Uh, and, and Trump stands to benefit from this murky world where truth doesn't exist. And, and that is going to benefit him as an individual, even though it won't benefit the democracy or, or its constituents. Do you think that the, the pending trials will change any of that? So when you get into a court of law, that is yeah. sort of strictly evidence-based. Obviously, people who support Donald Trump are going to who think that January 6th was set up by the FBI or Antifa or whatever are going to be convinced that this is, you know, Joe Biden uh, going after a political rival. But I, I still feel like there's a chunk of there's there's this chunk of Republicans who have been slower to get back on board yeah. with Donald Trump. And, and I kind of wonder, like, does something like that help clear the air a little bit or is that more it's going to help clear the air, but it's going to help clear the air or cl clarify the story 25 years from now, not 20 months from now? It's it's a great question. You would have thought that the January 6th hearings would have done that. And they didn't, right? I mean, they, they helped provide some clarity for people open to the data, but for many yeah. others, no. And the indictments sort of only reinforce Trump's support. Now, my the data suggests, the polling data suggests that if Trump is convicted, there's a fair amount of independence. And even some Republicans are like, well, I can't elect, uh, you know, uh, a guy who's been convicted. <laughs> but I don't know if it will change their view, right? I mean, it mm. may just be like, yeah, he got screwed. It was Antifa. But I still don't want to vote a guy who's in jail, right? I mean, yeah. I just, we're, we're living in such a bizarro world. It's hard to know that any sort of evidence is going to push the needle at this point, because I thought it was going to get pushed a long time ago. Yeah. It is, it no. is, it is fascinating times we, we live in. So should we shift to a, a, a more uh, upbeat topic? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right. Surprise is not an upbeat topic. Um, uh, so, but turns out political podcasts are oftentimes um, kind of dark. Yeah. Uh, so as the we're going to shift international for, for a minute here. So as the war in Gaza continues, there, there have been in the last few weeks um, several significant legal developments, the most significant of which is that South Africa has brought a case before the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of genocide in its war in Gaza. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is the United Nations' highest court, and, and it only hears cases about international law between countries. So only you know a country can bring a case against another country. Uh, South Africa has accused Israel of violating the Genocide Convention by seeking, quote, to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as a part of a broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group. So let me just read a, a, a short quote from the Washington Post here. So uh, it says, South Africa points to Israel's large-scale killing and maiming of civilians, its use of dumb bombs, the mass displacement and the destruction of neighborhoods, deprivation of access to adequate food and water, medical care, shelter, clothes, hygiene, and sanitation to civilians, its obliteration of Palestinian civic institutions, and its failure to provide any place of safety for Gazans. South Africa also accuses Israel of preventing Palestinian births by displacing pregnant people, denying them access to food, water, and care, and killing them. 
So in order to win, South Africa will have to prove that Israel intends to destroy Palestinians as such. We can talk about that as such part here in a minute, but that's hard to do. So, you know, Bill, there's a lot to this story, um, but it kind of provides a chance for us to talk about a lot of different stuff, a couple of different directions. One, we can talk about the court and this case and its implications. What does it mean if South Africa wins this case? Um, But it also allows us to revisit a question that we talked about a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago about whether Israel's actions rise to the level of genocide here. So where do you where do you want to start with this? I think, you know, we've done this before, but I think it's it's worth our time to start with some definitional stuff. And you, okay. you defined it right. You talked about genocide in terms of you have to intend to destroy in whole or in part a population based on racial, ethnic, nationalistic or is it religious? I'm trying to think what the four day. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. So the intent is key there. Uh, and we tend to and you and I, we've done, you know, uh, Holocaust seminars and p- t- people tend to think that genocide is the only is the big, you know, the big charge. But there are other charges, right? There are crimes against humanity. There are war crimes and there are a variety of crimes under those subcategories. And I think they're all relevant and they're all important. Now, what South Africa is doing is they're saying that they believe that Israel has intent to destroy the Palestinian population. This is a bold and aggressive uh, charge here. And I will say, so the I think the Washington Post article you shared linked to the case that they make, which is an 84-page document. Now, I sort of perused this, and I will say it is a very, very serious case. Uh, they, it is well-researched. They provide lots and lots of data. Um, now, me personally, when I, when I look at the data on intent... I don't know whether I find the evidence of intention to have been met yet. Um, but when you read the case, it sure feels like there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Israel is in violation of a lot of international law. Right. And I think it's important that we say you can still, even if you don't reach that bar of genocide, that a lot of international law, humanitarian law has been violated. Right. Specifically on issues of proportionality, um, specifically on distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants. Right. So there's, I think, just a tremendous amount of evidence there. Um, but when you look at the, the the intent, I'm still not convinced that they've they've demonstrated that. Uh, but this is, I mean, I, I will say that there are many people who disagree with me. I think there are there are there are people making very compelling cases for uh, Israel having meant uh, met the intention level. So I guess you know my initial reaction is I think it is an interesting conversation, and I think it's more robust than I initially thought it was going yeah. to be. Uh, what, what's your take on this? No, I mean, I think you're, I tend to be in line with you. I, I mean, really at the heart of this is the, it, it's a legal question, right? This is not a, a moral yes. or an ethical question. This is a legal question. And it's that legal question of whether you can establish it, its intent and its intent to, you know, elim- here, I'll, uh, it's, its intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as yeah. such. So it is, it, it's important. There's kind of two parts to that. Like yes. you have to be intending to do this and you have to be intending to do this because they're Palestinians basically. Right. So it's, yes. it's not yes. just that we're killing. So you, you take essentially what are a bunch of war crimes and crimes against humanity, right? Like indiscriminate targeting of civilians and targeting, you know, cultural centers and hospitals, all this other stuff. That's where we can talk about, like, those are also you know, terrible, awful, you yeah. know, tragic things for which people should face uh, consequences. The question is, 
is the point of those things to uh, to kill to eliminate um, the Palestinian people specifically? That's why you're doing it, and and that whether or not that is the case is different from can you prove that that's the case in a court of law? And so there's right. kind of multiple levels to this. It's it's you know are they doing that? Are, so essentially, you could ask the question of are they essentially effectively killing the Palestinian people, um, you know, meaning the acts they're doing is, you know, yes, check that mark. This is, you know, being done, but that's different from they're intending to do it to eliminate Palestinians. That's another thing. And then there's another part, which is, and we can prove that. Right. And so Absolutely, that's yes. the really difficult thing. And so, um, it's an interesting comparison with, with Russia, right. Where I think similar allegations and accusations are going to come forward, uh, there, they've already started with the international criminal court, which, which brings criminal charges against individuals in the Russia case. But in Russia, I mean, there was lots of rhetoric from Vladimir Putin about how Ukraine wasn't a real nation and how like, yes. that's even easier to point to that hasn't played out quite as clearly in this particular instance. And so um, I'm with you in that I think it's it will be difficult. Now, there have been other ICJ cases. I think of the one I, I used one in my uh, international law class where Bosnia brought um, uh, charges against uh, Serbia after the, the war in Yugoslavia. And the ICJ went through and, and again, through this legal way, tried to figure out, like, can we establish the intent part? Yeah. And in that case, what they ended up finding was that sort of broadly, they couldn't find that. But there were a few specific instances where they could say in this particular case in Srebrenica, we can say that that is yeah. genocide. And I, so I wouldn't be surprised if that played out. Right. So I think what we what you would see in this is you're not likely to see some broad, uh, you know, um, uh, he, you know, finding that says, yes, Israel, the war in Gaza is genocide. What you're more likely to find is some specific instance, the bombing of this hospital or whatever, qual, you know, rises to the level of genocide. I think we might, I, I think that's possible. I think we might actually see some of that. But, you know, it's also really hard to establish this sort of stuff while the war is going on, right? And so, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Do you have responses to any of that stuff? Yeah, and actually, I think it's a great point because uh, one of the things. So, if you you can link and find uh, the the South African case, and and they go through it and they they detail what they believe to be the the violations of, of crimes and whatnot, and then they get to a specific section on intent, and that for me was the most interesting one because they what they do is they quote a number of many 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 Israeli officials, uh, and they they point out the instances in which these individuals, uh, government officials, right wing politicians who failed to make a distinction between Hamas and the Palestinians, yeah. uh, intentionally pointing out that they're, you know, all are evil. You know, it was the Israeli president who talked about it's not just Hamas who bears culpability, all Palestinians. And so those examples, uh, I don't think they they reach the bar of overall intent, but I think to your point, it suggests that there are individuals who may be culpable for that, for not making that distinction, for talking about destroying a population. And that's really compelling. Um, when you see it, so it's smart on South Africa's part to to, to be directing using direct quotes because it helps you get inside the head, right? That's as yeah. you noted. That's the hardest part about genocide. It really is about the intent. Why is the actor engaging in this violence? Because you can kill people and not have it be genocide, right? You could you could kill them for a variety of reasons. You could kill um, you know Hamas because they're a danger to you. Um, you have to get inside the head of the actor and know what is their intention in doing so. And that's again, that's the really, really hard part. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, that's where, like, the acts themselves are, are easy to find. Like, as you read the Genocide yeah. Convention, right, it's not just, I think people tend to think of the Holocaust or whatever, right? But, I mean, there it's just specific that, I mean, it, it lays out some very general things, like deliberately inf- inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. So even if it, it's almost like a passive killing, right? So if you have yes. created a situation, which I think you could point to in Gaza really easily here, right? Like with yeah. with the the um, the law ongoing blockade and the you know failure to let people leave and the cutting off power and all these other things, right? Um, and and but that's not that part's the easy part, right? It's it's the intent part, and I feel like the intention, yeah. the idea of intention. I, I, I again, I'm not a a, a genocide scholar, um, but I, I feel like you know the initial thought is when you talk about like the intention is what makes it genocide. On on one end, that actually um, is is a nice thing, right? It, it is the idea that. Uh, even if I only kill a dozen people, if my intention was genocidal, then I am still guilty of gen- like I don't yeah. have to be a successful genocide heir in order to be convicted of genocide. And in that sense, yeah. it sort of opens up the idea of genocide to you know broaden the prosecution. But at these other ends, it's it 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 kind of closes it off, right? It makes it really hard in in the other cases to sort of point out that that is specifically the intention that is be that is being uh, played out here. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's other elements of this. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think we've answered the question about whether this actually meets gen- I, I, I still, I always come back around to this, you know, this notion that genocide is, um, is bad. That's, that's not a, that's not a notion. That's hard, deep, deep thoughts from Phil Barker. Right? <laughs> genocide is terrible, awful. It should be prosecuted and all of that. But I, I think it's one of those where it, it's not necessarily a failure if you can't establish genocide. Like yes. all these other things are also yeah. terrible things. And, and, and if, if, if Israel is guilty of war crimes or crimes against humanity, but the case can't be proven beyond, you know, at, at a legal standard that it's genocide. I don't think yeah. that should feel like a failure, right? Like people should still be held accountable for things. Even again, uh, there, there are lots of terrible crimes. Genocide is not just the only ultimate international crime. That's such an important point. And I, it feels like in the last five or so years, we've drifted to a place internationally where everybody wants to start with genocide. We yep. saw it in Ukraine, where Russia accused Ukraine of genocide. Then Ukraine uses accuses Russia of genocide. We've seen it here. You know, the the the, the Israelis are suggesting that what Hamas did was, was genocide, right? I mean, so... I think we quickly jump to that term and and it may be more useful to step back and say, let's think about the conduct. And there's a there's a whole field of of international law and war crimes and crimes against humanity, all of these things. And let's think about what is actually more accurate and what fits the the conduct rather than instantly dump, jumping to genocide because we feel like what happened is terrible and we it has to be genocide and um you know I I think it's it's useful for lawyers and lawyers to be cautious on that front yeah yeah the broader aspects of it you know as I glance through the genocide convention here as well I mean again it's 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 a broad range of action of 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 sort of effects that fall under it but it's also a broad range of actions and that's where you might actually see Israel the case be stronger as well. And it's not just yeah. successful uh, genocide, you know, um, incitement, public incitement to commit genocide or complicity. So those also count as, as genocide under the genocide convention. Yeah. And so even if the government is aware of things that are happening and they're not acting to prevent them, that becomes, you know, part of it as well. So um, we're, I, we, yeah. I know we need to move on, but I mean, the ICJ part of it is also really interesting because one of the articles that, that you and I were bouncing back and forth talks about how, 
for Palestinians, at least, there's something uh, refreshing about this in that. So, you know, so much of it plays out at the UN Security Council where the US has veto power. And so yeah. people who feel like, you know, Israel hasn't been held accountable or whatever. And the ICJ is different because it is there is a, sort of a true equality before the law that plays out here. And and um, I, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the, a court um, handles this because the court yeah. is it's not that it's apolitical, but it's less political than the UN Security Council, for instance. And so oh, that, that's, it's, yes. it's a really interesting aspect to see um, as that moves forward. And and to that extent, I think that's, that's kind of a brilliant move by South Africa, which, you know, has, a, again, a history of apartheid itself, which is part of yeah. what brought it to this. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, that that that's what courts ideally should be about, right? This impartial fact-based approach to things. Yeah. As opposed to our, like, as our discussion of January 6th demonstrated. Right. The other thing people should know is that the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, it, this is going to move slowly. Yeah. This is not something that's going to be done in six months. This is a couple of years yeah. before the court finally is is going to, you know, come up with a decision there. And and that is, I think, a good good pop process, right? And and it's separate, as you noted, from the political process. And this is already globally a political football where you've got, you know, the, the South African case is, is quite popular and it has a lot of international support. That being said, there are a lot of states who are filing briefs on behalf of Israel, including Germany, Germany right? Including yeah. the United States and saying that, you know, we do not believe that this is an accurate account of genocide. And, and Israel has made the claim that they are being being unjustly targeted, mm -hmm. right? That they're being held to a standard that other states aren't. And this is sort of an interesting dilemma where, you know, there are a lot of conflicts that are very, very, very deadly. And we don't always put a microscope on those, uh, but we do here, which again, it doesn't say that we shouldn't, but it's it's an interesting uh, way to think about the comparative yeah. perspective. One other, like you were talking about the, you know, other countries that are filing briefs. The other part of it is I, I think Israel feels really strongly in uh, on their case, like they feel that their case is strong as indicated. Yeah. So this is sort of the one of those, you know, minute uh, fact aspects as well is that countries can choose to um, to to because they have sovereignty, they can choose whether they will appear before the ICJ or not. Yes. And some countries agree to do this universally. So some countries sign on and say, you know, no matter what, when a case comes before the ICJ, will accept ICJ jurisdiction. And other countries do it on a case-by-case -case basis. And Israel is one of those countries. So Israel didn't actually have to appear yeah. before the ICJ, but they have chosen to respond to this case, to actually go before the ICJ. The, the chief lawyer is a Holocaust survivor. I mean, it, it is, they, yes. they feel very strongly about their case um, as well. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it will be, again, the most interesting legal cases are not open and shut. They're the ones that are really complex and complicated. And this will be, this will be one of those. It'll be, again, it'll be fascinating to watch this play out and sort of see how legal minds at the ICJ feel about this. So, yeah. all right, we should transition to our last topic where we're going to talk about losers, right? And our final topic looks at some interesting data on losers. It comes from Catherine Rampel, who's a, an opinion columnist at the Washington Post. Uh, she concludes that Americans all Americans see themselves as losers and that their, their political side is being unfairly defeated or discriminated against. Um, referencing a recent YouGov poll, she noted, quote, if you break down responses by political leanings of respondents, uh, though a clear pattern emerges, liberals are most likely to say the country has shifted right, where while most conservatives perceive the country as shifting left, 
the one thing nearly everyone agrees on. The country is always moving in the opposite direction of their own politics, uh, whatever those politics are, unquote. In other words, we all think we're losing and that the other side is winning. Uh, in this poll, majorities of majority of Dem- both Democrats, 66%, and Republicans, 81%, declared that their own side has been losing most of the time or more of the time. This is fascinating, Phil, because when I read this, I had a very similar reaction. How can conservatives feel this way when they're winning all of the time? So that, this is really interesting. What, what do you make of all this? I, well, I, so I, I think this is fascinating. I, I think um, a, a couple of different ways to talk about this. But, um, uh, you know, one of which is I think the, the broad it's not that this is sort of straightforward, but the implications of this are not great, right? I mean, we know all yeah, sorts of great. stuff about like when people feel like the system is stacked against them, like they are always losing, that erodes the legitimacy of the system. Yeah. So for democracy to survive, it is hard to have democracy survive when everybody in the country feels like the deck is stacked against them because, yeah. you know, who is the system actually working for? Nobody feels like it's working for them. That is that is a rep- recipe for democratic breakdown and populism and all sorts of other stuff. So so this is a really, it, it, this is not great. Um, but I also yes. think, <laughs> I also think that it, it, it sort of makes sense. And as I read this data, I thought, um, I, I kind of understand where both sides are coming from in this way, yeah. in that, you know, it, it's, it, it feels like we're talking about two different arenas, right? If you're a conservative, conservatives are losing the sort of cultural social battle, right? Like society is moving on. It's moving forward on things like gay rights and trans rights on the environment, on all sorts of other things, right? On abortion rights. Like they have, it, if you're asking, you know, um, what, whatever the question was, is the country moving in the direction of your politics, if you're a Republican, the answer is no, right? America is not moving in a Republican way. But we live in a, in a society that we've also talked about on this podcast and that, that Daniel Ziblatt and, and Stephen Levitsky have written about in their new book, where the institutions are stacked in a way that benefits Republicans. And so Democrats can say, look, you know, we opinions are on our side. And yet Republicans have been have been far more successful at maintaining political power, the courts, uh, you know, state governments, all of this stuff, especially when you throw in the filibuster and all of that. So I kind of think they're both right, right? Like Republicans are right in that their their political side is losing socially. But at the same time, they're winning politically. And so Democrats are correct to feel like they're always losing as well because the deck is stacked against them. And again, it comes back to institutions and all sorts of other stuff, but it's also this recipe for disaster because it feels like the system is not representing the actual opinions of the people. It's like uh, empowering, you know, minorities, uh, political minorities in ways that are problematic. So yeah, I mean, does that, does that make sense? Did you think any of that when you were reading or thinking through this at all? uh, You you correctly answered this question, (laughs) Bill, because I was... I was thinking the same thing, right? I was thinking like, okay, let me think about this. And you're, you're absolutely right that, that conservatives are losing the broader culture war. You look where, you know, gay rights, all of that, evangelicals are losing ground socially, but they are winning institutionally, right? So I get it, right? If you're, if you are a liberal, you are so frustrated about the Senate and the Electoral College and the Supreme Court, right? Because you feel like, hey, finally, the country, the democracy isn't moving in our direction, but 
yet these institutions don't allow us to express ourselves, right? And again, if you're if you're a conservative, you feel like that um, you know you're losing all of these broader social uh, values, and the country's moving in a different direction. So, yeah, it, and so you're you're spot on, and I think you're right. It creates the incentive to tweak, manipulate, destroy these institutions. Because if you're a liberal, you're saying, "Hey, we got to blow up the Supreme Court, we got to blow up the Senate, we got to get rid of the Electoral College," because that's the only way democracy works. And if you're a conservative, you're thinking like, we've got to do everything necessary, even authoritarian tendencies to save the country because, you know, these liberals are going to undermine all of our institutions. And, you know, it, it, it creates long term tension where both sides are going to have incentives for for arguably maybe dangerous institutional behavior. So it uh, um, it's it's fun. This is one of those political science things where it's it's bad for the world, but it sure is fun to kind of think through. <laughs> I agree 100%. And it, and it is, you know, it's one of those, like, if you think about people as, you know, voters as rational or political actors as rational, like, yeah. it, be, it as you were talking about, this creates an incentive for, when you're talking about blowing up the system, but like, you know, the idea of, of destroying norms or re- rewriting institutions or whatever. And, you know... When done from a like uh, from the right standing or perspective, restructuring institutions is not bad. But if if the motivation from both sides is the system doesn't work and we need to make it work better for us, um, it's that's 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 disastrous. Right. And so I think you have you know, there's we're on a path where we, we are already at a place, I think, where you see the Trump movement that is basically a conservative movement saying, you know, we need to break the rules in order to win. And I feel like the longer that keeps up, the more likely you're going to, and the more justified the left is going to be in saying we have to break the yeah. rules in order to save democracy as well. It becomes the, both are like rational, you know, if you start at their starting points, it is rational to sort of destroy democracy for both of them. <laughs> I chuckle as I say. Oh. Well, and it's, it's, it's a dark place to be, to have everybody perceive themselves as a loser, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, and again, that's, that's a, be a frustrated loser. And that really isn't the history of sort of American exceptionalism, right? This idea of, of angst and, and frustration and depression because, you know, your, your political side isn't winning. It, uh, it is a, again, we find the American experiment as a, as a really bizarre, unique moment right now. You, you've spent most of your life viewing yourself as a frustrated loser. Do you have advice for the rest of the country? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a long road. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, no, it is. I don't know. I mean, it's. I I, I found that I find data fascinating in this yeah. front, right? It's just this is really really interesting. So, all right. Well, on that note, we should probably wrap up. Phil, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected and and go find some of these really interesting articles that we uh, we uh, shared this week. Yeah. So the the uh, the politicslab.com is the place to go and if you click on this week's uh, episode i've got an article on the iowa caucus that sort of breaks down some of the stuff i talked about um i think i've got three articles on the rewriting of january 6 all with kind of really interesting data um as well and then uh uh an article on the icj case including a link to the genocide convention if you wanted to it's not it's not particularly long to kind of read through the legal language um there and then this again this fascinating article on how we're all uh, view ourselves as as being the political losers all of those are available there easy access to link uh, click on those links um, all at the politicslab.com that's fantastic all right phil you have a good week you don't get sick and and uh, no no trips to new york and then i'll see you next week nothing but health from here on out though that's right all right bye, bye phil, phil.